0: end of the Perimeter Church podcast. We are pleased to bring you the message from this week's worship service. For more information about this message, this week's teacher, and to watch or see other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. If you've been with us, you know that we are in the fourth and final week of uh, this series that we've been calling Jesus Outside the Box. And I know that I've uh, done it uh, every time. If you've been in the chapel, I've started with the box illustration, but I'm going to do it again. Bear with me. I think it's important to orient us to why we're talking about it in the terms of Outside the Box. But here's the idea. The whole premise of where we're going with this series has been that we live life with all kinds of boxes, different areas of our life, different categories of our lives that we shape boxes for, that those relationships, those things need to fit into the box that I've created for them. So we'll do it with, for me, I struggle with this with my kids. I want them to fit into the box that I've created for them. And I want them to like what I like and do what I want them to do when I want them to do it and be interested in the things that I'm interested in, so on and so forth. And when they don't fit into the box that I've created for them, I get discouraged, I get frustrated, maybe even disillusioned. We'll do it with our spouses. We want our spouses to fit into a box. Uh, Maybe any other family relationship we'll do it with. We'll do it with friends. We'll do it with jobs, that our bosses would act a certain way and that our salary would be at a certain level and that there would be a certain level of enjoyment for us in our jobs. And when those things don't fit, then... We don't know how to handle it. We do it with all kinds of things, and we do it with Jesus. We want Jesus to answer our prayers in the time frame that we want him to answer them in. And then not only that, we want him to answer, them, answer the prayers in the way that we want him to answer them. We want him to be for us more of a genie in a bottle than a God of the universe. We want him to be made in our image more than we want to be made in his image. And when he doesn't fit in our boxes, because he doesn't ever... And we don't really fully know how to worship him well. And we even can get bored with him because we craft a Jesus that we can manage and that we can control and that we can make what we want him to be, but that's not the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus of the Bible is not manageable or containable or controllable. He is much bigger than we could ever imagine, one who insp- and inspires us to awe and wonder and worship when we begin to get a glimpse of him that is bigger than the boxes we have shaped for him. So we've talked about Jesus in the three offices that he serves in. That he is our great prophet, the great prophet, the one who spoke salvation over us and gave us the word of God in the flesh, is our great prophet. We talked about how he's the the one who is the great priest, the one who atones for us. He's our sacrifice, our substitute, the one who is the mediator between us and God and through his death, He is the one who atones for our sin. Last week we talked about how he is king. He's the one who reigns. He reigns now and the kingdom is here. It's in us, reigning in us and through us if you're a follower of Jesus. But he's coming again. The kingdom now is an already not yet kingdom. The kingdom that is to come will be a full kingdom when he returns and we will reign with him forever and ever. So we talked about those three things as we've looked at Hebrews, primarily Hebrews chapter 1, a little bit of of chapter 2. Where I want to take us this morning is we begin to think about in light of those three three things, let's talk about not so much who Jesus is as we have been, but what he's done. Namely, that he is our overcomer. He is the one who has overcome for us. He's the one who achieves for us the victory that we so long for. He is the one who is our champion, the one who will carry us across the finish line. And in light of that, I want to share a story with you to to lead us into this time where we're focused this morning. Some of you may remember this name if you're old enough to remember and go back into the recesses of your memories to, to pull out a memory from 1982 where this lady became famous, 15 minutes of fame, not necessarily for what you want to be famous for. And she's still somewhat kind of an internet sensation because her YouTube video of this event is Still widely viewed, but in 19, 1982, a, a young lady by the name of Julie Moss ran in the Ironman Triathlon in Hawaii. Now, if you're not familiar with the Ironman Triathlon, uh, it's crazy. It's it's just insane what these people do. It's one of the toughest, if not the toughest, endurance races in the world. Here's what you do: you swim 2.4 miles. At that point, I'm done. You might even need to toss me a life preserver at that point. After that, you bike 112 miles because that's fun. <laughs> and then, just for kicks and giggles, you run 26 miles, a marathon. It's crazy. I have no idea how the human body can endure something like that, but people do this. And they survive it. Well, for Julie on this particular day, she was a young college student who had not really trained all that extensively for this triathlon. She had entered it more out of her studies. She uh, She was writing a thesis on exercise physiology, and so she more wanted to see how the body responds to this type of endurance. And so she didn't have an expectation that she would win, but she finds herself towards the end of the race in the lead. Not only is she in the lead, she's in the lead by 20 minutes. She is blowing the field away, and she's nearing the finish line, literally within a few hundred yards of the finish line, and her body says no more. She becomes, she is severely dehydrated, and her body shuts down. You can watch the video. You can Google Julie Moss. YouTube video will come up, and you can see this, and it's a little hard to watch because her body begins to lock up. Her knees, it's as if she has no knees anymore. It's like she's running or walking on broomsticks, and she begins to stumble and then fall. And as she's running slash walking, trying to run and walk, she falls again. And she gets to the ground and looks as though she's inebriated in some way, and she gets to her feet by sheer willpower, and she falls again. And this happens three or four times over and over again, and you just hurt so bad for her. And then she realizes, I can't do it. There's a quote from her in an interview she gave later on where she said, I just was saying, Julie, get up, get up. And I couldn't. My legs would not work. She begins to crawl, and she's just a matter of yards, maybe 20 to 30 yards away from the finish line. Crowds have come around her to cheer her on. You're almost there. You're almost there. You're almost there. And the girl who was 20 minutes behind passes her, and she doesn't win. She continues to crawl exhausted, and she reaches the finish line, collapses, and finishes in second place. It's a heartbreaking story. It's, like I said, it's sad, it's a little hard to watch, but I I think it's a visual for us, for how many of us at times, and maybe for some of you even now, even today, you're in the season of your life where her experience and what I'm describing of her experience is something that you go, you know what, I, I have often felt like that in the Christian race, in the Christian life. I'm so wearied by sin, I'm so tired of temptation, The brokenness around me, the brokenness in me has taken such a toll on me that I am just tired. My head is drooped low. I feel as though in the legs of my heart of faith that I have that I'm walking or trying to run on broomsticks. And I just keep falling and I'm tired of getting up. And we struggle. Some of you have experienced this feeling of trying to follow Jesus and just being so tired. Others of you say maybe you're newer to the faith and you go, I I haven't experienced that yet. And you're maybe more like Julie was on the front end of her race where she had tons of energy and it's all great and wonderful. But rest assured, there will be a time, there will be a day where you will in this Christian life get knocked down and you will feel somewhat of this struggle. In the text that we're going to look at today, it's going to talk about being entangled by sin. That we feel so wrapped up sometimes by sin, and we feel so weighed down by it and so wounded by it that we think, I just, I just don't know if I can keep going. The author of Hebrews, really the whole book of Hebrews is about endurance. He keeps alluding to it at many places throughout the book, but in this verse, these couple of verses that we're gonna look at today, this is really what he's honing in on is he's saying this, he's essentially saying to us. Jesus, your champion, lifts your head. And he says to the weary and he says to the weak and he says to the heavy laden and he says to the wounded, lift your head up. I've got you. And what you feel so weary to continue doing, I will carry you across the finish line. Look to me. Look to Jesus. Turn with me to Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. We're going to read the first two verses now, and then I'll read the the third verse that you see printed in your bulletin. I'll read it later at the end of the sermon. Do this for me. Stand, if you will, as we read these short two verses together as God's word. Hebrews 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let me pray. Father, thanks for this this time together, and thank you most of all for your word. Thank you, you that you teach us through it, that we believe it is what it says it is, that it is living and active, that it pierces our hearts, that it shapes us and molds us, convicts us where we need to be convicted, encourages us where we need to be encouraged, teaches us and instructs us. Lord, would you use your word today? We trust that it will not return void. And would you use me as your vessel to just simply be your mouthpiece? And would you make our hearts through your Holy Spirit soft and receptive, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So there, the call of this verse, of these verses, the commands of these Two verses are twofold. One, you've you've got first that the author says, therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witness, I'm going to come back to that as to what he's referring to there. But he says, he gives the first command, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which so easily entangles or so closely, uh, clings so closely. I I originally memorized these couple of verses years ago in the NIV where it says easily entangles, sin that so easily entangles. And I can't read this verse. Uh, for years and years now, I have not been able to read this verse without thinking of a memory from my past when I read this, this language of cling so closely or easily entangles. And I'll tell you a quick story. It came from when I was probably around 9 or 10, maybe 11 years old, somewhere in there. I was at a buddy's house, and uh, he lived on a little piece of land, had woods in the back uh, of his house. And And uh, my buddy and I and a couple other guys were in the woods. We'd been playing. And I guess, I don't remember why, but I guess I'm assuming we were going back to the house for lunch. And as oftentimes happens with competitive little boys, we didn't look at each other and say, we're going to race now. But we kind of looked around and as we were moving through the woods, we'd started running to see who could get to the house first. So we're running through the woods, dodging trees and bushes and jumping over this and that and whatever. And I'm looking ahead. And I realized that this one guy that's in front of me, I can probably cut through this direction and beat him to the house if I can get this little shortcut. So I cut in between two trees, but I missed something in between the two trees that I didn't see. And I run straight into a a thorn bush and it entangled me literally. Uh, But I'm super competitive and I wanted to get to the house first. And I remember thinking something along the lines of, okay, this hurts, but I can't lose. Because obviously getting to the house first for lunch was really important. And so I keep trying to run. And the more I try to run, the more the couple of those branches from the bush entangle me more and more and rip away at my flesh more and more. And so I finally get out of the entanglement, but I'm moving much slower. I'm running much slower. And I finally make my way into the backyard and my buddy's mom has come out on the back porch and she sees me and she looks like she's seen a ghost. And she puts her hands over her face and she says, Jeff, what has happened? And at this point, I look down for the first time and and there's blood everywhere. And and I've just gashed my legs from these thorns that entangled me. For some of you, you, you may feel like that often or even right now there's there's sin in your life that has entangled you and has deeply and significantly hindered you from running this race that God's called you to race towards him for his glory for the name that we sing about of Jesus and you're deeply scarred and wounded and there's blood so to speak all over you and you go I just I'm just tired And the instruction is, lay the sin that so easily entangles. Lay the sin that that clings so closely to the side. Put it away. Okay, so that's the first one. It's the first commandment. The second commandment is, look to Jesus. Again, in the NIV, the, the, the way I first memorized this, the translation says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Okay, so we are to lay aside the sin that so easily entangles, and we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, to look to him. Now, these are the two commandments, and if I gave you a sermon today, and that was what I told you, okay, let's look at the text. It says, look to Jesus, throw away sin that entangles. Let's pray. I would be doing you a disservice because that can feel like, okay, that's nice and that's pretty language, but what do I do? How do I do that? How do I look to Jesus? How do I throw away sin? So I want to give you two things, two things to walk away with today as to how we can begin to run this race of endurance by looking to Jesus and by throwing away sin. First one is this, continually recalling who he is. We do it by continually recalling who he is. We cannot afford to try to run the race, the Christian race, and forget who Jesus is. Yet we do it all the time. I do it all the time. I'm embarrassed to admit that even though in this term, I I don't like this term, it's certainly not true of of pastors, but sometimes people jokingly refer to us as professional Christians. Even as a quote unquote professional Christian who is a pastor, I'm embarrassed to admit how often I can preach and teach about Jesus, but how little I can think of him. The frequency of which I think about him and of him in in a typical day for me. Can be embarrassingly low. The author of Hebrews models for us well this, this ability to continually put before us a beautiful, awe inspiring, captivating picture of Jesus. All throughout the book of Hebrews, we don't have time, obviously, to do a, a big long series on the book of Hebrews, but I would encourage you to read through the book because over and over and over again, this writer of Hebrews gives us captivating pictures of Jesus. In this text alone, he gives us some pictures of Jesus. First, we can recall who Jesus is based on where we've been the last three weeks as prophet, priest, and king. But we can also look at this text here and see that he's also called the founder and perfecter of our faith. And we can recall that. We can think on that. Let me give you, let me, let me zoom in on three words in this text that, to give you more of a, a deeper definition as to what they mean in the Greek, in the original language. So I've already talked about this looking to Jesus. Verse 2 says, looking to Jesus, and then he gives this description of him, the founder and perfecter of our faith. This word looking in the Greek means to keep thinking about without having one's attention distracted to keep thinking about Jesus. If, again, if I say, let's look to Jesus, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, you might go, okay, that sounds great. How do I do that? It can feel ethereal in some ways. We would say, well, here's what it's getting at. To think about him in an undistracted way, to continually think about him. To think about him in his offices, to think about him in his character, to think about him in the way that he loves us. So here's your first. I'm going to give you two homework assignments in this sermon. The first one is this. I want you to uh, every day this coming week and in the weeks to come, but just make it a a goal this first week to to do it for sure, and then hopefully it'll stick. Take five minutes, preferably in the mornings, but just at some point during your day, take five minutes, at least five minutes, but that'll be the the starting point. And just take a pen and, and, uh, and pad, some type of notebook, paper, whatever, And just recall who Jesus is. Just write thoughts down, worshipful thoughts about who Jesus is. Jesus, I am amazed by your grace. I'm amazed by how holy you are. I'm amazed by how you love us. I'm amazed that you are the perfect prophet and the perfect priest and the perfect king. Maybe you talk about with him, you, you list some things about his his grandeur and his majesty, his reign, his kingdom, whatever it may be, you're recalling who Jesus is in just for five minutes. And I think you'll find that just in five minutes of doing that, your heart will become tuned more and more to motivation to follow this Jesus as you fix your eyes on him, recalling who he is. But in this text alone, He's described as the author and the perfecter of our faith, the founder and the perfecter. That word in the Greek for founder is, is the initiator. He's the very reason we have access to the Father. He has initiated our faith. But I, I want to think for a second about this word perfecter, the completer of our faith, as it's getting at in the Greek. The one who is making us perfect. So if you are in Christ, if your faith is in him, then you are in this process called sanctification. The Bible calls it sanctification, which is the process of being made more and more holy, more and more like Jesus. And so you're in that process now, and you will be perfected on that day that you stand before him. It's called glorification. And so that's certainly happening now for the follower of Jesus. But but I want you to think about Jesus in this way as well. He's the author and the perfecter, not in that he is not just that he is making us perfect, but that he is our perfect faith. He is the perfect faithful one. In other words, everything that's true about him in his perfection, in his perfect faith, is through faith in him true of us. For years uh, that I was doing campus ministry, I, would, I loved sharing the gospel with, with students one-on-one across the table, we just have conversation, we work through the book of John together, much like Randy trains us in the life issue booklets. And then we'd always we'd always get to a point in the conversation where I loved using a particular illustration, and I've been able to use it a few times here as well since I've been here at Perimeter. But but I would simply say this in the top left hand corner, put your name, draw a line under it, and list everything under your name that's true of you apart from Jesus. So we list things like sinful. Just generically speaking, I'm sinful, I'm selfish, I'm prideful, I'm imperfect, I'm, uh, there's, you know, you could go on and on, I'm dirty or whatever. And then over here on the right hand side, I want you to put the name of Jesus and I want, to put, I want you to put a line underneath it. I want you to list everything that's true of Jesus. And what you end up list- listing is basically the opposite of what you've listed about yourself sinless, humble, selfless, perfect, pure, so on and so forth. And then we would look at a couple of verses together that that help us understand that Jesus is our perfect faith, the faith that we can't do perfectly, the life that we can't live perfectly, he has done for us. And so you look at 2 Corinthians 5.21 that says, and God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. And you realize that when you place your faith in Jesus, a swap happens. And everything that's true of him is now true of you. One of my favorite verses is Colossians three, verses three and four, where part of it says this: "For you have died, for the believer, you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God." When I was young, probably around the same time, same age that I ripped my shins apart with the thorns, I would go three or four straight years. Some friends of mine would go. We would we would go to the uh, Camp Briarwood in the summers for a week away and. It's a great camp, Christian camp. And one of the things that they would do on at this camp is that one of the highlights of it was that you would do a camp counselor, a uh, camper counselor hunt. And so they let the campers, all however many hundred of us, go wherever we wanted to on the grounds and then they would, and we could hide and they would look for us. There's no way this would fly today. There's way too many legalities and too many parents that would complain. You lost my son. Um, but we had free reign, at least as I remember it. I'm sure there were parameters. But we would have free... Well, by, by, the third, by the third year, I believe it was, we had scoped out all the best hiding places. And we had found this particular bush, a little bit off the beaten path, that I now know is an Eliagnus bush. And if you're familiar with Eliagnus bushes, they're very dense and thick on the outside. But when you crawl up underneath them and get inside of them, they're hollow. Great little play area for kids and it feels almost like a little miniature treehouse. And me and my buddies, there were four of us that had crawled up in there, and we were hiding inside this Ellie Agnes bush. And counselors walked past us several times and never saw us because all they could see was the bush, the foliage. But we were in there. It's not like we had disappeared. We were there. But all they could see was the bush. You see, when, when we're outside of Christ... In this illustration, my hand is me and my eyes are the eyes of the heavenly father. And when he looks at me, he sees me and he says, this is one who I have created for me and for my glory to be with me in perfect relationship, but I can't be with him because of his sin. And so therefore I have to be, to remain just and holy. I have to punish sin where sin, sin is in me. Therefore I am the right recipient of the just wrath of God. But Colossians 3 says that For those who are in Christ, we have died and our lives are now hidden with Christ and God. So if my hand is Jesus and my eyes are the eyes of the Father, now when the Father looks at me, I haven't gone anywhere, but I'm hidden in Christ. And when he looks at me, he sees everything that's true of Jesus. He sees Christ's perfection. He sees Christ's holiness. He sees Christ's perfect faith, even though my faith is weak. He sees it and he looks upon me and he says, I am well pleased and I adore you and I love you because I'm hidden in Jesus. Jesus is our perfect faith. He is the perfecter of our faith. And we have the great privilege and joy of hiding in him. And he covers us in every way. Secondly, how do we run this race of endurance? We do it by continually remembering what he has done. First, for others. Remembering what he has done for others. Hebrews 11 is the chapter right before this, and, and the, therefore at the beginning of chapter 12 is linking us to what he's just said in chapter 11. If you've been in or around church for any length of time, you're probably familiar that with chapter 11 in the sense that it's called the, the hall of faith. Those who have has shown the saints of old who have shown great faith in the past. But if you, if you kind of look at who's listed in Hebrews 11, it's kind of crazy that these people would be listed. I mean, think about this Noah is listed. Noah was given to drunkenness. Moses is listed as is, is great and as faithful and as used by God as Moses was. He was a murderer. Abraham is listed. He's the great uh, father of our faith. He's the one who, according to Paul in the book of Romans, actually modeled for us what justification by faith looks like. And yet here's Abraham who pimped his wife out not once but twice in a cowardly attempt to preserve his own life. You've got his wife Sarah who despite all the promises of God and assurances of God when told that she would be pregnant laughed at God and then when he called her out on it lied to his face. You've got Rahab who was a prostitute yet greatly used by God. Of course there's David who was the man after God's own heart and Israel's greatest king and yet he was an adulterer and a murderer and then even tried to cover up the murder. And you've got Samson. Samson's listed in Hebrews eleven, guys. I mean, this is my personal favorite because you'd be hard pressed to find one thing that Samson did that was faithful. This is the guy that slept with all kinds of women. This is a guy who lit foxes on fire and released them into the fields of other people to burn their fields down. This is the guy who killed thousands of men with the jawbone of a donkey, and yet he's listed here in Hebrews eleven. And what you begin to see that by the end of Hebrews 11 is you begin to see that this is not a chapter so much about the great faith of these people, but about the great faithfulness of their God. This is a chapter that shows us that we're all rebels brought to repentance by a faithful God. And it's so encouraging to be reminded of that. It's so encouraging to look and see other people's stories. Just in the past few weeks in my discipleship group, we've been sharing our stories about how Christ saved us. And just to hear and be reminded of how God has worked in other people's lives is deeply encouraging to our own hearts. Because sometimes in our own hearts, we can become convinced, we can begin to believe lies that God's not as faithful in my life as he is in others. And yet, through the hearing of other stories, we actually begin to be encouraged and go, okay, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, he is faithful to work in their lives and in my life. Secondly, we continually remember what he has done, not just for others, but certainly for us. Look at the verse two again. It says this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is what we could never be. And he's done for us what we would never do. Jesus joyfully and willingly went to a place that we would never joyfully and willingly go, the cross. And think about this. Like, this is crazy. The only guy who ever lived on the face of the earth that didn't deserve the just wrath of God The only one who ever lived that didn't deserve that joyfully and willingly went to the cross for all of us who do deserve it. There's a great old lyric from from Shane and Shane, the the Christian uh, singer duo. They, they They say it was an unfair deal on the part of Christ. He got my sin and I got eternal life. I mean, this is, this is wild to think about what Jesus did with the cross. And if you're beginning to tune me out because you know I'm kind of getting into Gospel 101, then, then tune back in because this is the most important thing that I or any preacher could ever share with you is that if you want motivation for the race, if you want fuel for the race, if you want affections for the race that God has called you to live, then it begins and ends with us gazing at the cross. Being amazed at what our Jesus would do for us at the cross. That he would take the shame of the cross that we rightly deserve and that he would take it and then to think that he would do it joyfully. Yes, he wrestled in the garden because he knew what was coming. But then when he finally said, your will be done, he went to the cross with joy because of his love for you. If that doesn't motivate us, if that doesn't stir us to say, I'm tired and I'm weary, but as I look to the cross, he lifts my head and I say, I can keep going. Not by my strength, but by his. Friends, he endured the cross for us so that we can endure the race through him. He endured the cross for you so that you will endure the race through him. Philippians 1.6 says that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. If he pulled you out of the muck and the mire when you were a sinner, lost, dead in your sins, far from God, he will not drop you now. He will put you in his pocket and he carries you to the place that you can never go. It says that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. His present reality is your future. You will be with him in glory. Not based on what you've done or haven't done, but based on him and his finished work as your champion, as the one who has finished the race for you. Look at verse 3 very quickly. Just make one comment. It says this, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. So that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. The two words at the beginning of the verse strike me the most consider this, uh, consider him, consider him. What better place to consider Jesus, to remember him, to recall him and what he's done? What better place than the table? It's not just a place of remembrance and recalling and considering, it's a, it's a place where we believe certainly that takes place, but that God's Spirit is present here in a mysterious way to where he fuels us. He motivates us. He gives us strength and energy for the race before us through these elements as a means of his grace. We look at the cross and we stand amazed because his blood covers us. Let me pray. Father, thanks for this time together. And thank you again for your word. Thank you that that you are for us everything that we weren't and can't be you finish the race for us and you fuel us even now by your spirit who is in us by the means of grace that you have given us father may we be a people who are quick to remember and to recall forgive us that we are a people who are quick to forget and even now as we come to your table would you meet us in a special way